Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL. New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we're honored to have with us U.S. Representative Carolyn Bordeaux from Georgia's 7th Congressional District. We'll get her take on President Biden's policy proposals, how to pay for them, and what it's like to serve in Congress at a time of deep partisan division. We'll also discuss an interesting bipartisan bill called the Trust Act and why she supports it. Also with me today is Phil Smith, National Field Director of the Concord Coalition, another proud Georgian, I should add, uh, who'll be coming to us today from his home in Atlanta, in, in, excuse me, in Athens, Georgia. And later in the program, Phil and I will discuss the importance of public engagement in fiscal responsibility. Now, before we get to Congresswoman Bordeaux, there's actually some good news on the budget front. The Biden administration has announced that it will release its fiscal year 2022 budget on Thursday, May 27th. So mark your calendars. Up until now, uh, things have been released in a piecemeal fashion. Uh, as you will recall, first there was the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, and then the $2.7 trillion American Jobs Plan, and finally the $1.8 trillion American Families Plan. So that's over $6 trillion of legislation and proposals uh, all put forward without any overall budget. Now, last month, the administration did release its appropriations uh, request for fiscal year 2022. Uh, it, it's asking for an 8% increase overall. Uh, most of that, uh, or a good portion of it, would be on non-defense appropriations. They get a 16% uh, boost under the Biden proposal and defense gets a 2% boost. Uh, but remember, the appropriations are just about a third of the budget and this request was only for one year. So we really hadn't seen uh, very much of the president's proposed budget uh, so far. So uh, without seeing you know, future year projections, uh, and you know what he's doing with the mandatory programs and revenues, you really don't get much of a context of the overall budget. So that's what we're going to get on May 27th. And you know the challenge is, uh, I mean, you know we've already got uh, rising deficits for as far as the eye can see, a um, trillion dollars and, and higher, uh, even after the pandemic spending comes down, which it, it will over the next couple of years. So that's going to make the budget look a little bit better than it has in the past year or two. Uh, but you see in the trend line, the budget the deficit begins to grow again. The debt begins to grow faster than the economy again. Uh, and so, uh, you know, by the end of the decade, deficits are back around 
or up to about $2 trillion and the, the debt is, is even higher. So look, um, uh, what is important about this news is that we're finally going to see all of the president's uh, proposals put together in the same place at the same time, uh, laid against the backdrop of the baseline with its uh, economic and um, uh, baseline proposals for spending and revenues and deficits and debt. Now, remember, presidential budgets are advisory, um, but Democratic control of both the House and Senate means that President Biden's uh, proposals are likely to, to get serious consideration. In fact, they already have. Uh, and remember also that first budgets of an incoming administration tend to be very consequential because uh, it sets out a, you know, a new direction for the budget. Think of Reagan's first budget or, or Clinton's or Bush's. They were all very impactful budgets. And this one probably will be too, since uh, President Biden is saying he wants to change the paradigm towards a more active role uh, for the federal uh, budget, for the federal government. So um, the White House has promised uh, that we will see, quote, a unified, comprehensive plan to address the overlapping challenges we face in a fiscally and economically responsible way. So if you mark your calendars on May 27th, we'll see how all that works. And now let's bring in this week's guest, Congresswoman Carolyn Bordeaux. Representative Bordeaux, welcome to Facing the Future. Great to be here. Um, I think there's a lot about your background and uh, current work that's directly relevant to our discussion today. So I just wanted to take a, a legislative minute uh, just to let our audience know a little bit about this. Um, before your election to the U.S. House of Representatives, you taught as a professor of public management and policy at the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies at Georgia State University. Uh, and uh, uh, during, it wasn't just academic stuff, during the, the Great Recession, the recession, you were director of the Georgia Senate Budget and Evaluation Office. And there you worked with both parties to help balance uh, Georgia's budget and get the economy back on track. And that sounds like a familiar thing. Uh, and um, there you also advocated for a number of policies to improve transparency and fiscal responsibility in the budget uh, process, uh, including developing legislation to track uh, tax breaks. Uh, all of this is sounding like uh, something that's transferable to, uh, to Congress. Um, you were given a special bipartisan recognition after your job at the Senate Budget Office. And in Congress, you now serve on the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee and the Small Budget Committee. And finally, uh, you recently joined the Blue Dog Coalition and you serve as chair of the coalition's task force on fiscal responsibility and government reform. Um, that's a wealth of, of experience on fiscal responsibility. It's clearly an important issue to you. And I'm just gonna tee up my first uh, question uh, by reading a quote of yours, uh, which I just found particularly compelling because it was um, uh, given when you became chair of the Blue Dog Task Force. And you said, as our nation continues to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, it is critical that our spending be targeted for maximum impact responsibly paid for, and that we work to reduce our national debt. Um, 
That sounds great to me. Uh, this has been an important part of your career. So, you know, uh, let me just ask why. I mean, public policy and fiscal responsibility go hand in hand with you. Right. So, yeah, I was director of Georgia's Senate Budget and Evaluation Office during the Great Recession and work with both parties on balancing the budget during that really tough time. And to just give you a sense of it, uh, you know, Georgia's revenues, when I came, we had about a $22 billion budget. The revenues plummeted. And all of a sudden, I was looking at $15 billion in revenues. <laughs> and so uh, it, was, uh, it was a pretty catastrophic period of time. Of course, there was the, uh, the stimulus funds that came from the federal government. So that ultimately, we didn't have to cut that much or find revenues uh, to, to fill that kind of gap exactly. But nonetheless, it was really a, a very intense period. And um, so I know how very hard it is uh, to balance the budget uh, under these really tough circumstances. And it is very hard for both parties to do it. Uh, so I do bring that sensibility. I went back to Georgia State after uh, being on administrative leave for three years to work on the budget and uh, founded the Center for State and Local Finance. And actually there was affiliated with the uh, Volcker Alliance, uh, which looks at fiscal responsibility across all the states. And so I headed up a team of researchers who evaluated state budgets and whether they were really in structural balance or they were in imbalance. So I do bring all of that background to the federal level. Um, it is something I think is very important. And one of the things that's kind of slipped away from us and it really seems both parties have kind of lost sight of this that uh, there are trade-offs you have to prioritize you have to think about one thing versus another you can't do everything and so finding a way to establish that budget constraint again uh, I think is something that's going to be very important at the federal level. Uh, Phil let me bring you uh, into the conversation. Sure. Congresswoman, uh, you are a member of the Blue Dog Caucus, and uh, that caucus has uh, long had a history going back to the 1990s uh, in terms of supporting fiscal responsibility and uh, looking closely through green eye shades is, I think, another another phrase that you like to use. Uh, what's it like being with the Blue Dogs, particularly as a freshman member? And uh, we work with a lot of members of Congress at the Conquer Coalition. I can tell you uh, the ones that serve in the majority always seem to be having a uh, a lot more to do and a lot more fun. It's just no fun to serve in the minority. So you're living in some interesting times when you're serving in the majority. Uh, but because of, uh, you know, the Senate has a, a paper thin uh, majority, uh, the, the, the House has might maybe what be, might be called a, a paper thin majority as well, right? So uh, what's it like? But the Blue Dogs actually have some leverage right now, right? And in, in, a, in a Congress that is that has such a small uh, slim, slim margin for error, right? When you're trying to get bills passed, you can actually talk a lot about fiscal responsibility through this caucus, can you not? So yes, it is a place where I found some kindred spirits uh, around the issue of fiscal responsibility. And so uh, that, that has been nice. Um, and as we evaluate the different bills coming through Congress, you know, the lens I want to take is, first of all, let's, let's look at the need. And I, I don't deny we have some serious needs in this country. We need to invest in ourselves. We need to invest in education. Uh, we need to invest in infrastructure. Um, but we need to think about what is actually the cost of meeting that need and think about it very carefully. Think about whether we can leverage the private sector effectively. 
Uh, I taught a class called Public Service and Democracy at one point in time and, and talked to my students a lot about the different policy levers that are available. And not, you know, not everything has to be done through government. There are all sorts of leverage that you can, you know, use to draw private capital into things or to, you know, tip the scale a little bit so that there's incentives for the private sector to, to flow into a certain space. So when we're thinking about need and cost, we also need to think about what's the appropriate policy lever um, to get at some of these different policies. And then last of all, you know, how do we pay for it? And I think my staff are tired of me asking this as we go through the different bills and co-sponsorships. And I'm always like, okay, how expensive is this? How do we pay for it? You know, is this kind of within our overall framework of investments that we think are very, you know, just absolutely essential? You know, if not, you know, we really, you know, we've got to think about the trade-offs here uh, as we approach all these different policies. That's a good thing to keep in mind because it, it, the problem with the federal budget is that there's no, uh, con- there's no particular constraint. It has to be a self-imposed restraint, whereas in Georgia and many other states, there are institutional constraints. Um, so asking that question, how are you going to pay for it, is, is important. Um, since you raised that subject, I mean, infrastructure is a big deal right now. Uh, the president has proposed a, an ambitious program. There's a lot of consensus, it seems to me, on a bipartisan basis that some of that is appropriate and necessary and would cost in the hundreds of billions of dollars. What's your take on the infrastructure debate right now? Just what might be feasible in a, in a bipartisan bill and, and what the uh, pay for might be? Absolutely. Well, I am somewhat new here, so I've only been here for four and a half months, but just looking at the lay of the land, it does seem like we have space uh, to, to do a, a physical infrastructure bill, as well as, I know they're calling infrastructure different things, but also to invest in ourselves, you know, childcare, education, uh, you know, family medical leave. There are a lot of things that we can do, healthcare, <laughs> healthcare reform, a big issue that I ran on. Um, there are a lot of things like that we can do. I think the first step with infrastructure is, you know, we have a challenge of climate change and we need to address that. Um, we also need to address infrastructure to unlock economic opportunity. And my district, which is the northeastern suburbs of Atlanta, is very, very challenged by congestion. And uh, it really has gotten to the point where businesses are leaving the community uh, because it's so hard to get in and out of this area. And so addressing congestion and mobility is uh, not only important for, uh, you know, economic, the climate and economic development, um, you know, it really is just basic livability as well in this area. Um, So those are really important investments that we need to make. Um, That being said, one of the things I've also talked about is we really should put everything on the table when we're thinking about making those investments. Typically, we have financed infrastructure through user fees. And we need to think about that as an alternative um, to, to some of the president's proposals or as a supplement to it to make sure that we can really pay for these very ambitious ideas that we have. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm joined by Representative Carolyn Bordeaux, Democrat of Georgia and by Concord Coalition National Field Director, Phil Smith. We have kind of a Georgia-centric program today. (laughs) And in that regard, Phil, I'm gonna kick things over to you. 
Thank you so much. It is very Georgia centric and rightly so. Uh, Congresswoman uh, Senator Sam Nunn uh, used to be the, the chair of the Concord Coalition. So we have a lot of Georgians that have been involved with us over the years. But speaking of the Senate, we've heard a lot about the Trust Act on the Senate side and some big name sponsors over there. Uh, but you're a sponsor on the House side of the Trust Act. Could you tell us a little bit about that legislation and what uh, interested you enough in it to actually become uh, not just someone who supports it, but a full fledged sponsor of the Trust Act? Right. Well, one of the big gaps we have is uh, either a gap in revenues versus expenditures uh, today, such as in the Highway Trust Fund, where we are no longer covering uh, a lot of the programs uh, that uh, used to be covered with funding from the Highway Trust Fund. And then we have a number of other trust funds that are projected to run out of money in the next uh, decade to two decades. And the sooner you addressed those gaps, the, the cheaper it becomes to fill that hole because uh, you know, you're not waiting till the last minute, waiting till it's a crisis uh, to fill those holes. Um, and so this is you know, the Social Security uh, Trust Fund, Medicare, uh, a lot of programs like that are projected to run out of money. And we need to, what, what this bill does is create a commission um, to look at how do we rebalance things so that those trust funds are paying for uh, the benefits that they provide and that they provide those benefits for future generations. And so, um, you know, I, we will see how that goes. I know it's building some bipartisan support, which is very important. And I think it should be part of the conversation around, uh, you know, how we adopt a, a fiscally responsible budget at the federal level. Yeah, you know, I I'm attracted to that uh, because those aren't hypotheticals. You know, I mean, those trust funds have dates that are going to be um, running dry coming up uh, relatively soon. And they're very, very important programs. And I think what it kind of underscores is that even if we do pay for those new things, as we were talking about in the last segment, the budget is already on an unsustainable path. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, you got to be able to do more actually than, um, than, than simply pay for new things. Yeah. And we were running trillion dollar deficits before COVID. And so right. yeah. you know, as it's... we go into these new ideas, we have to recognize this is on a base that was not, uh, you know, was not balanced or, you know, we hadn't brought that gap together the way we needed to, uh, to begin with. Yeah, and let me connect that to the economy or let you connect it to the economy, because I, I always think it's important to, you know, that fiscal responsibility shouldn't just be an eat your peas thing. I mean, I, I've, I've always thought that it's really about long term economic growth. And, you know, you mentioned some areas where you think we should invest more in growth. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, provided it's done for in a fiscally responsible way. So what are some areas you'd like to uh, have us invest more in for, for economic growth? Well, certainly infrastructure uh, is very important. I can talk a little bit. We, we just uh, we're, are working on a package we're calling Future Fit the Suburbs. So uh, my district is suburban Atlanta. And uh, this is things like bus rapid transit, uh, greenways, um, retrofitting malls, right? We have dead malls that are punched holes in our uh, inner, it's usually in the inner suburbs. Uh, uh, in the fabric of our communities here and we need to redevelop those and we need to and this is one of those times where I think I want the private sector to lead the way but I think the federal government can kind of put its thumb on the scale to, to tip make those areas competitive up against the green field so right now all a lot of the new development is just happening out on the 
the periphery of our communities, these green fields, but we want it to come back in and, and fill those holes um, where there's a lot of population. It, it's also um, better because it's a shorter commute <laughs> to those places. There are many benefits of that. Um, so that's another piece of it. Um, we're interested in a national uh, transportation infrastructure bank. Um, also looking at uh, electric charging, uh, innovations around that. Uh, there are a lot of interesting projects in this area, uh, one of which is to um, remove regulations so that we can install solar panels in highway right-of-ways or even in the highways themselves uh, in order to help charge electric vehicles. Um, so I, I do think we need to, you know, push strongly towards electrifying our, our fleets and then you know, push strongly towards uh, renovating our power grids uh, to make sure that they can support that electrification. We also need broadband. I think uh, anybody who's ever been outside of the metro area trying to get access to the internet, um, you know, even cell phone coverage is horrible. I know when I go out there, you gotta stand on the hill in the right way and turn exactly <laughs> correctly so that you can uh, yeah, actually yeah. complete a phone call. Um, you know, th this kind of uh, investment is, is really gonna be essential for, development uh, in, in rural areas. So that's gonna be very important. We also need to invest in our human capital. And I think we all recognize that, uh, you know, uh, higher education is the pathway uh, to upward mobility in the 21st century. And I'm in a district where people highly value education and know that that is so critical. And so programs like Pell Grants, uh, that used to cover 80% of the cost of higher education, now it covers 30%. And uh, we just have a lot of young people graduating with a ball and chain of debt around their ankle. Um, I think there are appropriate ways to address this uh, where we really focus on where there is need. And the Pell Grant is a, a path to really making sure that we are uh, supporting people for, for whom you know, college, the barrier to college is the cost of college. And um, so those are the, some of the investments that I would like to see going forward. Do you, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but there's some interesting ideas like a, a vehicle mileage tax that are being proposed. Uh, when you talk about the broader agenda, that's going to be very expensive one way or the other. Um, some ideas like a carbon tax or even a value added tax. Those are really big ideas. And like I said, I don't really mean to put you on the spot with a yes or no, but do, do you think that we need to, to consider some big ideas on the on the revenue reform side as well as the if we're going to go big on the spending side? Yeah, I, I so things I've been talking about with uh, the chamber and with the business roundtable and groups like that uh, are, uh, of course, you know, what is their perception of gas tax? You know, how is that? And I, I do think there's some we haven't increased the gas tax since 1993. And so there is some space there. And I think uh, a lot of people are okay with putting that on the table. Um, the carbon rebate, right? And so there's this idea that you put a tax on, it's essentially fossil fuels, but then you rebate it back to people because it, it has a regressive impact. Um, you rebate a portion of that back to make sure you are blunting any kind of regressive um, piece of that. But there is obviously space between the revenues raised and the rebate amounts that you could then use to fund the green infrastructure that we really need to address uh, climate change. Um, there's a lot of talk about the vehicle miles traveled um, fee of some sort as a way of paying for our roads and bridges and transit uh, as we move to, towards electric vehicles. Um, and I think we should pilot that. Um, it is technically difficult because you've got to, you know, people 
got to have some kind of device in their car that records those vehicle miles traveled. And uh, I certainly understand the privacy concerns about that, but we could certainly pilot it and we could also try it on our commercial fleets. And I've started to broach that idea with, um, you know, the, the UPSs of the world and some of the trucking companies and things like that, you know, would that be an appropriate place uh, to really deploy that technology and, and see how it works? Well, speaking of uh, infrastructure as we have been, I know that you are uh, in need of getting to the airport and uh, have some technical, uh, some transportation challenges on the I way to congestion. doing <laughs> that. So, uh, yeah. Exactly. So I'm going to have to uh, let you go now, but uh, we really appreciate uh, your being with us this morning. This is uh, Bob Bixby uh, for Facing the Future. We've been discussing the economy, fiscal responsibility, and infrastructure, and lots of interesting ideas with Representative Carolyn Bordeaux, Democrat of Georgia. Phil Smith and I will be right back after these short messages to talk more about President Biden's agenda and the importance of public engagement. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is Bob Bixby. I'm joined by Phil Smith, the National Field Director of the Concord Coalition. And uh, in this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the importance of public engagement in fiscal responsibility. You know, one of the founding principles of the Concord Coalition uh, was that we shouldn't be a think tank with our feet in concrete in uh, inside Washington's Capitol Beltway but that it was important to have uh, a presence outside of Washington and to you know, act as, a, as a, a fulcrum or a catalyst or something where citizens who are interested in fiscal responsibility, uh, learning more about the budget uh, or uh, communicating their views would be able to, um, to, to use the Concord Coalition as a, as a, you know, as a, as a vehicle for that. And I remember, uh, and Phil, you'll remember this too, one of Paul Songus's quotes um, that he used to use to define why this was important was to say that politicians are like weather vanes and you can't just go up to the roof and ask the weather vane to change direction. What you had to do if you wanted the weather vane to change direction was to change the wind direction so the weather vane would, uh, would respond. And he told us when we started the Concord Coalition that the field mechanism should be, the field mission really should be to change the wind direction so that politicians would feel that there was a constituency for fiscal responsibility and that their constituents understood that. So we have tried uh, for all, almost 30 years to, uh, to fulfill that role uh, in, um, in the fiscal policy debates. And, you know, Phil, there are, I can think of at least three ways that we, we do that. Uh, we have, we target academic audiences, students, high school, college, graduate students. Um, that's one. We also target civic and business groups that want to hear a speaker or have an interest in, uh, in those types of presentations. And, uh, and also Capitol Hill itself, I mean, on congressional staffers, because they have to deal with constituents who are interested in fiscal responsibility, and sometimes they're 
just in responding um, to their constituents, they like to work with a group like the Concord Coalition, which they know is, is nonpartisan. So Phil, I, I, you're the national field director. You've been with the Concord Coalition almost as long as I have, going back uh, to nearly the very beginning. Um, so give us a sense, sort of fill that out a bit. What we, what, some of the things, examples of what we are still doing uh, in case people are interested in contacting us on the academic, uh, civic and, and uh, Capitol Hill fronts. Absolutely. The, the goal of the Concord Coalition is, is simply to educate Americans about federal budget policy so that they'll have the tools necessary <clears throat> to take part in these debates. And it's interesting as you travel around the country, and then one of my favorite things to do is to do just that, to, to, to travel around the country and work with these groups to have seminars and educational events where people can, can learn more about the federal budget. But it's interesting because the, you know, different citizens and residents of, of, of different states uh, have different roles in our democracy. And today I'm coming to you from what is probably the most 50-50 state in the nation, right? If you have to look at, at who votes for which party in our two-party system, and that is, of course, the state of Georgia. And so Georgia is a great example. Uh, here, you know, we've done multiple events, congressional events. We've done uh, academic events. Uh, we just recently here on the program today had a Georgia congresswoman on Carolyn Bordeaux, a freshman member from the 7th Congressional District of Georgia. We expect to have an upcoming event with her where we run our budget exercise. Uh, we've been at the campus of the University of Georgia, at Emory University, at Georgia State University, uh, at the Sam Nunn School at Georgia Tech. Uh, and this is just one state, right? So we do, we do stuff all, all over the country. But it's important for people to be educated about this because we, we've, we've got to somehow or another get beyond the bumper sticker talk. And of course, that's in all issues, but it really is especially the case with federal budget issues. Uh, one of the questions we hear so often uh, that's a bumper sticker question is, if you just get rid of foreign aid, you could solve all of these problems, right? Well, people, if they listen to the Concord Coalition, if you've been to a chart talk presentation at a local civic club by the Concord Coalition, that's one of the first things you find out is that you cannot solve this, you know, regardless of how you feel about foreign aid, whether you're for it or against it, it's only 1% of the budget. So you're not gonna get very far with these massive challenges that we have in terms of the sustainability of our federal budget uh, by just looking at foreign aid. So one of the things that we hope to do in the field when we interact with people is to have them ask smart questions, smart policy questions, so that when they run across Representative Carolyn Bordeaux, they can get beyond the bumper sticker BS and, and really dive into some core issues uh, that are important. Yeah, I think that that's uh, that that really is a, a an important f function because there's no reason that uh, people should naturally should should um, be experts <laughs> on the uh, on the federal budget, um, but uh, having you know having some sort of basic metric on the background really does help. Um, the other, you know, uh, you mentioned foreign aid. There's also the, the waste, fraud, and abuse um, uh, issue because everybody's convinced that uh, waste, fraud, and abuse is, you know, half the budget. Uh, unfortunately, there is no line item in the budget that is labeled waste, fraud, and abuse. So it's a matter of, um, it's a subjective judgment. What, what is waste, fraud, and abuse to somebody is not waste, fraud, and abuse to somebody else. Um, I think an important thing is that our budget exercise uh, 
is is named principles and priorities. And, uh, you know, that's that's lasted for a long time because what we wanted to convey was that it's not just, you know, can you cut the budget or can you raise taxes? That's, uh, you know, anybody can balance the budget if all they have to do is deal with themselves. I mean, if you're looking in the mirror, it's very easy to make hard choices because you don't have to argue about anything. what we like to do with a budget exercise is have people go through and work with somebody else sitting across the table who they might not agree with. Uh, and, and having a discussion, not just about the numbers, but about the principles and the priorities behind the numbers. That's exactly right. And <clears throat> I can tell you there are countless examples that we've had over the years of where people who live in the same community, uh, but maybe haven't even taken the time to talk to one another in years, find themselves seated right across the table. You'll have a Fox viewer sitting right across the table from an MSNBC viewer. And all of a sudden they have to listen to that other person's principles and listen to their priorities, maybe even try to woo them a little bit to try to get them to vote for something that they wanna vote for in this two hour long exercise. One of my favorite examples uh, was in Mount Airy, North Carolina, and uh, Republican Congresswoman Virginia Fox, who is probably one of the most conservative members of, of the entire House of Representatives, did one of these exercises. And we've done this, you know, from the, the right all the way to Congressman, former Congressman, the late Congressman John Lewis in downtown Atlanta, and everywhere in between. So this exercise can be run with anybody. But the one in Mount Airy, North Carolina, uh, this one, uh, we, we randomly divided people up, as we always do. And as it happened, the local chairman of the Republican Party was seated with the local chairman of the Democratic Party. (laughs) (laughs) And they actually had the best discussion and they hammered out a budget proposal. And I just wanted, you know, I told the congresswoman afterwards, I was, will you take this message back to Washington to show that people can actually work together? And honestly, that's one of the reasons I, I love the exercise so much is it gives you hope for society because, you know, even before the pandemic, we were sequestered. Uh, we're in our silos uh, where we, we all have the same Facebook friends and we all go to the same church or we all go, you know, it seems like all our, 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 our people that we surround ourselves are so much like ourselves that we never take the time to listen to other people's principles and priorities. And, and we're going to have to do that if we're ever going to make progress on making our federal budget sustainable over the long term. Long term. We're not going to ever get 100% of people to agree. But if we can get people to the table and have them, you know, hash out these things and, and that, like you, I really appreciate the name of our exercise because oftentimes all these other examples can kind of get in the way. Oh, they're talking about the national debt again. Maybe that's not the best example to use to talk about. Well, well at the end of the day, you know, if, and, and I've seen this from the left and the right. Some people on the left and the right say, you know, deficits don't matter. Well, of course, deficits matter. When you're talking about money, money matters. Why does it matter? because it's about our own principles, our own priorities, and as a nation, how we want to move forward. And hopefully, if you experience one of these budget exercises, you'll be armed with some information to, to help you take part in this discussion and get out of your silo, and let's move forward on these issues. This is Bob Bixby. You're listening to Facing the Future on WKXL in New Hampshire, and uh, we're discussing the importance of 
federal uh, of public engagement in uh, federal budget policy. I'm talking to Phil Smith, the longtime executive director, uh, not executive director. Hey, I gave you a, uh, I gave you my job, the uh, longtime national field director of the Concord Coalition. Phil, Phil and I have been um, around with this since uh, since the last century. That's exactly right. <laughs> Way back in the 1900s, Bob. <laughs> I know it. I know it, really. Well, you know, uh, we were talking about the, the, the public engagement uh, exercise principles and priorities where people sit around in, in small groups and try to come up with their own plans from scored options that we give them from the Congressional Budget Office. And so they're dealing with the same sort of information that uh, members of Congress would be dealing with, you know, on the scoring side. Um, one of the things that I, I haven't actually run the exercise in a while, but when I did, because um, long ago I was the field director before Phil was, uh, I, I, I kind of judge the success uh, or failure of the evening by looking at faces as people were coming out of the exercise. And I always like to see, and most of the time often did, see smiling faces. The interesting impression I got was that people felt good about themselves and their and the others who took part in the exercise, even if they didn't agree with them, because the process of going through and discussing something and trying to hammer out some sort of a consensus made them feel good. I mean, it made them feel like it was reassuring, like we can do this. And uh, I think that's really, really important, particularly as, uh, as we're, you know, in a increasingly partisan era and in a divide, the fact that people on the local level can get together like that, starting from different positions and work their way through some some issues on principles and priorities and arrive at, uh, at some conclusions. I, I mean, it gives me reassurance, but it certainly gives people reassurance who come to the exercise. Now, there are some that don't work out. You know, there are certain, uh, sometimes it doesn't work out that way, but even if it doesn't, even if they weren't able to compromise, I think people felt good about the attempt. I think you're right. And I think that when people do the exercise, they do regain some hope. A lot of people have lost hope about the future of the country. And, uh, and when they see our chart talk presentation, you see why, because you see these founders. And so one of the reasons I like to run the budget exercise after someone sees the chart talk presentation is because uh, uh, there's, they're frankly scared and, and, and they lose hope when they see these daunting challenges. Just even the most simple concepts uh, become very complex when you talk about this, the size of money that we're talking about trillion dollar deficits again we, as the congresswoman said on the program before we had a we had a trillion dollar deficit scheduled to happen in fiscal year 2020 before we even knew what the word covid was yeah. and and so how what is a trillion dollars how do you explain to somebody what a trillion dollars is they know what a million dollars is so you can explain what a billion dollars is when you get to trillion dollars they think well that's just the next one up well no it's not just the next one up it's actually exponential it's it's a lot bigger and when they go through the exercise and they start adding up or subtracting hundreds of billions of dollars and 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 and, and then directly associate those with with plans and programs that they like 
that they are very interested in, that they're very invested in oftentimes. Uh, and there's the, the generational aspect of it, you know, what's happening with our children and our grandchildren with these decisions that we're making today, uh, both in terms of the debt or infrastructure or all these different things that we look at when we look at, at the budget. And so uh, after they, they do it, you're right, they do, they, rightly so, they pat themselves on the back because they have shown that they, as, as citizens, can do what uh, no recent president or Congress has been able to do, which is put together a plan uh, for the future. You know, one of the other things that I find really interesting is that sometimes in the intergenerational context, and we, we try to, to, to do that, to bring both you know, people of different generations uh, and different perspectives to, to the table. Um, but one of the phenomena that I, I, I find interesting is that sometimes you find not a generational conflict, but, but generations kind of looking out for the other. And right. I, I, I mean, I've had this happen where you'd have, um, let's say, older people at the table uh, tell the younger people at the table, this is a problem for you. And, you know, here's what, you know, we're willing to, to you know, put on the table uh, in, to, to make the budget situation sustainable over the long term. And I've, I've had younger people respond by saying, well, no, we want to take care of you. We don't, we, you know, we want to make sure that nothing happens to, you know, Medicare and Social Security. Well, you know, nobody does, but I mean, you, you want to make sure that the program is sustainable. So they have kind of a reverse conversation of older people saying, well, no, but I know you don't want to cut, you know, we don't want to cut it either, but we want to make it sustainable for you. And the younger people say, well, but we don't want you to, you know, have a problem to their grandparents. So sometimes uh, that's a really interesting uh, and somewhat counterintuitive it is. discussion it's that breaks out. It's kind of based on the old concept, though, that the, the grandparent and the grandchild have a common enemy, right? <laughs> Which is <laughs> and it also reminds me of the, of the adage that, that we've heard oftentimes, because we work with a lot of senior groups as well uh, as young people on college campuses. But at the senior groups, a lot of times you'll find pretty quickly that people love their children, but they really love their grandchildren. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, I, I, it's, it's an interesting point to end on because I was, I was thinking that too. Uh, we, we had a poll very, very early on in the Concord Coalition, I remember, uh, that ba basically said, and it was less polite than that. It was, it was kind of like people kind of had, had the attitude of my kids are on their own, but I'm really concerned about my grandkids. <laughs> so... Uh, all right. Well, Phil, thank you for uh, joining me today. And yeah. I want to thank uh, Congresswoman uh, Carolyn Bordeaux, 7th District of Georgia, for joining us earlier in the program. We've been talking about the importance of fiscal responsibility and public engagement in fiscal responsibility. This is Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby. Join us again next week. <laughs>